Good morning. The scripture for this morning is from Matthew 18, verses 7 through 14. It can be found on page 6 in your bulletin. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my, of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go and look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Thank you, Anna Laura. We took a, a little poll last week in our service regarding what topics you were hoping we might cover over the next two weeks in our new series, Questioning Christianity. Well, the people have spoken. The people have spoken. We're talking about hell. Let's pray. <laughs> We're going to need your help, oh God. We are. But literally, even as this poll, these folks that responded last week, uh, this being sort of the clear winner of it all, there's an interest, an eagerness, a desire to understand and know, and I pray that you would honor that desire to know better how these hard truths, how these things that we struggle to embrace, whether if we're brand new to you or even as professing Christians, how these things add up and what your word, your Bible says about them. So give us insight. I pray more than anything, uh, because we can see the truth and still want to walk away from it, that you would give us humble hearts. What we most need is a, is a heart that is willing to say, tell me, God, something even that I might not at first want to hear, if it's true, and if it's real, and if it might show me God. We want to see you. So we give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are looking at some common doubts and objections to the Christian faith. You might say we're looking at barriers to belief, a short four-week mini-series. And so two weeks ago when we began, we took a look at this problem. Christianity is too exclusive. There just can't be one way to God, can there? Then the following week, last week, we looked at this idea that the Bible is too unreliable, that we can't trust its historical accuracy, plus there just seems to be too many disagreements about how to interpret the Bible. Next week, 
we're going to look at this, that the world is just too painful. Timing is appropriate, right? How can a good God allow so much suffering? Today, we'll say this too is relevant, pertinent, personal for so many of us. We live in an age of tolerance. We live in an age when such ideas feel offensive, outrageous, even immoral. This is the problem of hell, the problem of hell. And so it goes, hell is hateful. Hell is unfair. There's just too much fire and brimstone in the Christian faith, too much wrath and judgment. Is this what you have said to yourself or maybe even out loud? Have you said to yourself, I, I really actually prefer a more tolerant, more accepting religion? What's the idea of this supposedly loving God that also sends people to such a horrid place? It seems so bloodthirsty, so primitive even, so violent, so unforgiving. So let's take a look. We're looking at a passage today from the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus is engaging in an extended discourse. It's a, a teaching time between him and his disciples and presumably other people are listening on in. We're going to use this passage to respond to four common responses, four common sentiments about the idea of hell itself. That number one, that hell is manipulative. Number two, that it's hateful. Number three, that it's mythical, isn't it? Number four, that it's just unfair. It's manipulative, it's hateful, it's mythical, it's unfair. Let's take a look. Number one, hell is manipulative. Jesus today has this great reputation as being a teacher of peace and of love. What people often don't know, especially if you haven't had an opportunity really to personally read through the Bible, especially the first four books of the New Testament, which I highly invite you to read if you haven't done so already, but what people often miss is that Jesus himself, you know, Mr. Peace and Mr. Acceptance, spoke about hell more than any other biblical figure or author in the entire Bible. Today's passage is one place where Jesus mentions hell. He does it twice in verse 8 and in verse 9. But what you have to notice is that Jesus brings it up in the context of a wider teaching on community. He's talking about the junk that is within us Sin, pride, looking down on others, things that can hurt us, hurt other people, threaten community life. He's warning people. He's warning us about the destructive power of our self-centeredness. And this is the reason why he's bringing up hell. It's a cautionary word. Yes, it's a strong word, but notice this. Jesus doesn't spend his life or his teaching ministry simply walking around saying, all right, let's talk about my favorite topic here, judgment. Let's do it again. It's not simply something that he is turning to just arbitrarily, which is, in fact, what you find in a lot of religious communities. You may have heard of churches or maybe even grown up in churches that always and only preach so-called fire 
and brimstone. This past Halloween, I was clicking around and reading about this trend. I don't know if it's a growing trend, but it's fairly common. Uh, coming out of different churches and Christian communities that around the time of Halloween, they'll erect what they call hell houses. It's sort of a Christian spin on the haunted house, but what they would do is they set up actors as well as images that try to depict in its most graphic terms the reality of hell and judgment as well as the consequences of your actions that get you there. Haunted houses that are designed to show quote-unquote sinners that they're going to hell. And the article, of course, was an examination about whether or not this is ethical, whether or not this is biblical for Christians to do this. Of course, in places like that, it feels like the goal is to just manipulate people's emotions, scaring people with the idea of hell. And in fact, I'd agree with you on some level if this is what you feel, that it's irresponsible, even maybe, even maybe immoral to do it quite like that. And the reason why, and the reason the Bible itself gives us why, is because you cannot scare a person into the arms of God. Genuine faith, as the Bible defines it, comes from a heart of love for God. But fear takes us in the opposite direction, doesn't it? Fear, if you think about it, is all about self-protection and self-preservation. Fear at its core is all about me. And the Bible tells us, in fact, that our fundamental problem with God, which it calls sin, is that we are always and only about me. The cancer of our selfishness. So get this, if fear is my only motivation for my interest in God, Forget heaven if all I'm looking for is a ticket out of hell because I'm that terrified of it. Then all I'm thinking about in my fear is me. All I really care about is me. All I truly love is me. What just happened? Fear intensified my slavery to my self-centeredness. Fear deepened my commitment to me. Fear only makes the problem of sin worse if we're trying to use it, even if we're trying to use it as a bait and switch in the way in which we're trying to bring people to God. Manipulating people with fear of judgment alone. I'm talking about just naked, nothing but the terrorizing stuff. Ironically brings people farther from heaven and closer to hell. You, you cannot literally scare the hell out of them. <laughs> you cannot. And so we should not. Because scripture tells us 
that while it's important for us to get a dose of reality as to the consequences and the offense of our sin and the culpability of our lives, at the end of the day, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the grace of God. Yes, in front of the backdrop of his judgment and holiness and justice, but it's his kindness that most brings you to your knees. It's a love that you can't imagine. It's a grace that you won't dare to almost believe that most brings you before a holy God with tears of contrition and tears of joy. And so we find Jesus here, of course, as he addresses hell, not involved in emotional manipulation. He's just doing spiritual resuscitation. He's just giving warnings and telling the truth and not trying to scare people into believing in him, but wooing them with the hope of salvation. People often say, number one, hell, it's manipulative, not in the way that the Bible tends to present it, not in the way that Jesus speaks about it. Number two, we often say, well, it's hateful. I don't like it. I'm turning away from it because it's hateful. That the idea of hell, that the idea of judgment itself is just horrible, spiteful. If God were really a God of love, we assume there would be no hell at all. And here's a question for you to consider. Have you ever gotten angry, maybe really angry, because somebody you care about has gotten hurt? Maybe it was rage because someone you love was being taken advantage of or was physically harmed, was emotionally abused, was financially deceived. Maybe you were upset over the weekend. Maybe you were angry because of the murder of innocent lives in Beirut and Paris. In those instances, you were angry. Why? Because you care, because you love, because people matter to you, whether they're close to you or if they're under, on the other side of the world, but because of a commitment to the dignity and value of all humanity and human lives, you said, this is wrong. This should not be. This is evil. Your outcry in fact, echoes the cry of God. Because as Christian author Becky Pippert has written helpfully, anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. That if the person you care about 
that's being harmed before your very eyes is someone that you love, the worst possible response that you could offer them is nothing. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. Or, as Miroslav Volf, Croatian theologian at Yale University, survivor himself and his family of the genocide that occurred in his homeland a few decades ago, helpfully put it here, God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Because he cares about people that bear his image. Because he cares about the world that he made. He has an intolerance when it's damaged and wounded and killed. God's wrath, which is in fact his passionate justice, flows from his love. He must respond as a God of love when people are wounded and destroyed. I know the hell idea of hell and judgment is hard to swallow, but we need to consider it this way. Do we really want a God who looks out over the carnage of Paris and says, don't worry about it. You're all right. I mean, you're bad, but you're not so bad. I forgive you. Or could there be a God who says, I grieve the loss of these lives. I hate the evil committed against them. Wrongs cannot go unnoticed. Evil cannot go unreckoned with. Justice must be satisfied because love must be ratified. Notice how Jesus in the last paragraph portrays God as a shepherd. That when one of his 100 sheep wanders away, that he actually goes to look for the one that wandered off. He's chasing after people. He's loving them and caring for them. And, and in fact, when he, when he finds the sheep, he loves it. Uh, when he finds it, Jesus says, truly, I tell you, he, he's happy. <laughs> he's invested his heart in it. Jesus even concludes there in verse 14, in the same way, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Jesus apparently did not see any contradiction between this depiction of a compassionate, caring, loving God and the God of hell just a few sentences earlier. The God who has a place in his justice for a, something called the eternal fire somehow for the person of Jesus these were reconcilable. These were not in conflict. 
And it is, of course, in part because hell is simply the expression of God's hatred for evil and love for people who are ravished by it. We can talk about that some more. Number three, hell, we often say, is not only manipulative and not only hateful. Thirdly, we say it's mythical. It's not even real. So we're sort of wasting our time even talking about it because it was sort of this legend or this idea that was created by people, again, simply to exercise control over the masses, to scare people into religious submission, or however else you want to explain it. Especially in American culture, the notion of hell has a mythical quality about it, right? We think of hell as this very hot place. I don't know, what's the image in your head right now? Little creatures, right, running around, red tights, right? Pointy ears, pitchforks. And of course, it's not a real place anyway. Notice Jesus uses all kinds of word pictures and metaphors to describe hell. And like we talked about last week, one of the most important things to understand is that most of these images are meant to be used symbolically or read symbolically as metaphors, as literary devices to describe the reality. So in verse 9, of course, Jesus refers to the fire of hell. Literally, that word is Gehenna. Uh, according to historians, all of Jesus' listeners would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. It was a real place, this Gehenna. It was sort of a valley right outside of the city of Jerusalem that served as the garbage dump for town. Uh, so, you know, sort of like the Fort Totten, <laughs> the dumping grounds over there, but far, far worse, far, far, far worse. Of course, because they didn't have modern technology to package and to control the odors and the placement and the management of the waste. And so what it was, was this massive valley of gunk that burned continuously, that smelled terribly that had decomposing and decaying who knows what always it was the just about the worst imaginable place this is the word that he uses to describe an afterlife of judgment Sometimes in other parts of the New Testament, Jesus describes hell as a, a prison or a dungeon. So is he talking about there actually being iron bars in some place somewhere that we haven't yet discovered? No, he's telling us it's a real place, first of all, a place that people go, not just a state of mind, but it's also a place, as with prison, that you go for a long time and you can't get out, not on your own accord. Uh, you heard in verse 8, it described as being eternal in duration. At other times, hell is described as being full of maggots. Uh, in parallel accounts, in the first four books of the New Testament, the Gospels, Jesus adds to this language of Gehenna a, a place where the worm never dies, which just sounds like this random, who, what is he talking about, worm? He's talking about maggots. 
that, that never die. Why? There's always food. There, there's a decomposing that never ends. You're falling apart and you're never done falling apart. Horrifically, endlessly, every part of our humanity, physically and spiritually and mentally and emotionally, we're coming apart at the seams because the grace and the goodness of God that was holding us together has since and finally departed from us. Which brings us to this idea at other times, hell is described as an outer darkness. Darkness. All light has been removed. The light of God's goodness is turned off. You're banished from the presence and the favor of God. I mean, this is what hell is. Every joy you have, the source of which is God, the Bible tells us, is removed. Every smile on your face, every little pleasure and great delight, everything that makes your physical body comfortable, the temperature, the climate, your surroundings, your environment, all removed, all gone. Uh, everything that's holding you physically together, which is hard to imagine, except that the Bible says every part of you, even on the molecular level, is held together by God himself. Gone. Removed. Every relationship. There are no friends in hell. Every blessing, everything that you can say, that is good, that is right, that is beautiful, that is how it ought to be. Gone. Okay. Hell is the wrathful removal of the goodness of God from your life. The lights are turned off. It's an outer darkness. Which is why hell is described in verse 8 as a fire. An image, of course, to describe the pain of this judgment. Like being burned and it never stopping. Notice it's actually not likely that this Fire is meant to be literal. Let me give you a clue. Because, at least in this passage, or in these passages, when Jesus talks about hell, you can't be in an outer darkness and be in fire at the same time. So again, invitations to understand the symbolism of these things. And you say, well, of course, oh, great. You know, it's not literal. Oh, good. It must be better. No, it's not literal. It's far worse. <laughs> Usually when the Bible uses word pictures and images, it's because it's just stretching and grappling for whatever experiences we have here on earth that can just start to approximate this unseen reality, whether of heaven or of hell. Giving us good reason to believe that it's but the tip of the iceberg, but a preview, just but barely getting at the edges of describing the fullness of its terror. Hell is a real place, not just an idea or state or mind, a place of unimaginable pain and misery that we experience physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And you hear this and maybe you say, well, that just sounds not just bad, but unfair. Just terribly, terribly unjust. Number four, common objection. Hell is unfair. We'll close here. It's unfair because it's arbitrary. It's unfair because, gosh, it's like, can we really be all that bad to deserve all that? 
The Bible does tell us that we are all morally screwed up, doesn't it? Again, it describes the problem as sin. At the heart of the problem, as you may know or may be coming to know, is not simply that you're breaking a bunch of arbitrary moral and religious rules, but rather, if you were to flip back through the book of Matthew and other parts, you'll encounter one time when Jesus was being asked. It was actually a gotcha question. Someone was trying to trip him up, asking him, what's the greatest of all God's moral commandments? What's the best one? What's the highest one? What's the one that we got to really pay attention to? What's the one that sums up all the other commandments? And Jesus gave a most surprising answer. He said, it's love. It's love. To love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. To love your neighbor as yourself. You see, the Bible doesn't define sin simply as breaking moral rules, although those rules that are in the Bible are there as an expression of concrete love in real life. Sin is loving yourself at the expense of others. Sin is self-centeredness. Sin is telling God and the world, I am me and you are you. Leave me alone. Out of my way. I've got this under control. You ain't the God of me. And don't you dare expect anything from me. Underneath every sin is a heart that says, leave me alone. Take your rules elsewhere. Leave me alone. Stop telling me who to love and how to love. Leave me alone. Tell me what to do with my money. Leave me alone. Tell me what to do with my body. Leave me alone. Tell me how I can even be right with you, God. Leave me alone. Tell me how to get to heaven, how to avoid hell. Leave me alone. Here's the logic of the Bible. It's that in the afterlife, people always get and only get what they've most wanted all their lives. There's a curious justice about it, isn't there? And that if a person spends their whole life telling God, leave me alone, get out of my way, get out of my life, leave me alone, that there will be a day when God finally relents and says, okay, okay. Which is just about the worst thing that you can hear God say. Have it your way. Finally, I will leave. Withdraw myself from your life. Turn out the lights. Send you to the outer darkness. Terribly, terrifyingly, tragically, guess what? It's a place called hell. As theologian Jim Packer puts it in one of his books, Concise Theology, scripture sees hell as self-chosen. 
Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually chose, either to be with God forever worshiping him or without God forever worshiping themselves. You see, the Bible says that the actual problem with hell is not that it's unfair, it's actually all too fair. Stunningly so. It's too fair. And in fact, the heart and the passion and the compassion of God is to interrupt that fairness. Because the shocking story of the Christian gospel is that God in his love lets that wrath, that hell fall on himself even when I deserve it. That as a gift from him, that I who have been calling out in various creative ways, perhaps for almost all my life, leave me alone, God, leave me alone, that there is a love that will not leave me alone. That God himself in Christ on the cross stands in our place in the person of Jesus, bearing all the infinite wrath of God for our sins and selfishness and failings. Jesus was thrown into the fire of hell. We said earlier that hell is utter separation for God, from God, estrangement from God, abandonment from Him. What does Jesus cry out on the cross? But this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where have you gone, your goodness? It's all wrathful removal of your favor. The betrayal and abandonment of his, his disciples, his closest friends, was bad. But nothing can explain the pain of the loss of the presence of his father. Physical torture and death of crucifixion was bad. But far worse, unimaginably worse, was the torture of his soul. Jesus there on the cross was suffering the furnace of divine banishment. He went to the dungeon. He went to that prison. He went to that place of the never-dying maggots, the Gehenna of Gehennas, the outer darkness, the eternal fire, and not for himself but for us taking upon himself, his soul, the sum total of all our hells, put together, compressed into a three-hour period while he hung on the cross. And don't you see, if you really get this idea of hell, if you would dare to let yourself go there, even past your resistances, then you really start to taste the love of God. Because this is what he suffered for you. And for me, for us, hell is the freely chosen result of our sin. For Jesus, hell was the freely chosen result of his love. 
that we might enter life, life perfected, life as it was meant to be. If you, if I, ironically, surprisingly, let ourselves understand and grasp what the Bible says about hell, guess what? You begin to get a taste of heaven. What if hell isn't a myth? What if it's very real? What if Jesus isn't teaching about hell to manipulate you? Not to scare you with God's judgment, but maybe to stun you with his love. Because yes, what if hell isn't unfair? What if it's not unfair? What if it's something that we deserve? What if it's terrifying? Yes, but what if the story of the gospel is that Jesus took that judgment, that hell for us, that we might be forgiven? that Jesus went to hell in our place in order that we might enter heaven, which would mean then, what if hell isn't the epitome of hate? What if it's the clearest demonstration of the love of God for you? Wouldn't you then want to know this love? Wouldn't you then want to know this God? Do you know he's a God of heaven and of hell? Let's pray. Jesus, these are things that we need your spirit now to just help us to grasp. And maybe more importantly, to help us to understand what it would look like to align our lives behind these realities. Not easy to grasp, but satisfying to our souls if we would go there. We pray that you would teach us and instruct us. In Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand. We're going to sing a song that talks about the suffering of Christ on our behalf. Let's remember his love.